so I'm back with uh, Greg Dykstra from Pixar Studios, and uh, we're going to carry on with the conversation we were having last time. So the one thing I'm really interested in, Greg, is is as a creative person, I mean, obviously, as a production studio, you run to a timetable. And when a film is released and you're already working on the next thing, does it kind of feel like you're revisiting the past a little bit? Or, you know, is it, is, it, is it difficult for you to watch the films once you've actually gone through that creative process of making them when you've already moved on to the next thing? Uh, it, uh, I do. We are very critical. So <laughs> most of the time when a film is done, a lot of us here uh, still wince at a few things and we still, you know, wish that we could do this or that a little bit better. Um, but I think that's a good thing because because it we we learn from that and we build on that and we we progress as we go forward and it's what we all want to do. I think um, I think we kind of have to have that desire to to just um, uh, I, I don't want to use it because it's so uh, used so often, but we we always want to push uh, the envelope, um, not just in terms of of technology, although that's a big thing too. Um, but but just in general, the look, the feel of the film, and 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 how how it makes us feel, how it made audiences feel. So um, it, it I wouldn't call it uh, difficult to look at though. I actually uh, in, I know there's a lot of people who who uh, I've heard a lot of actors say that they can't watch their own films. Um, I'm I'm not quite like that. I I, I really enjoy seeing uh, our past work because there's a whole lot of memories tied into that, and also it's a good way to to see how far we've come. Um, yeah, it must be interesting having that sort of audience association of, oh, I remember doing this bit, I remember doing that bit. It must be, you know, almost like a picture book in a way, you know, like a family album of going through these films. Yeah. And that must be sort of an interesting thing. And obviously that the, you know, the software that a lot of the software you work with is the RenderMan software. And I'm quite yeah. interested from the point of view of obviously Blender is another one that sort of ended up evolving into an open source sort of thing. Um, what's your, what's your mm -hmm. viewpoints on things like Blender and sort of stuff like that, the open source equivalents of like Renderman and things? Uh, I, I'm, I'm really intrigued about it. I don't, I don't know where it will go, but I love the idea of that shared um, technology and, and making you know, making it available to more people. Uh, there's, you know, when I was a, a kid and interested in, in getting into film, uh, even getting, you know, we, we grew up in kind of a, a poor family. I mean, we didn't have a lot of stuff. It, it was hard to get um, things like movie cameras and stuff. And our school uh, actually would lend us things. And that was really helpful. But, but having um, a Super 8 camera uh, to start making films was, was really uh, important. And it was a big part of my development, I think, just starting to realize that I could do this stuff, that I wanted to do it, that it was exciting, and, and just start the early development process for, for how, to, how your brain would kind of solve problems, you know, uh, just, just your normal uh, uh, training ground, uh, young training ground. So uh, anyway, I think that if, if, if the young people today could have easy access to to things that are much give them much more um, power basically uh, than those little super eight cameras I mean the power to edit and you know add sound effects and add effects and um, you know modify footage that they've shot or or do animation you know uh, directly into the computer and keep advancing I mean all of that stuff is just it's it's amazing and and I think if we didn't have something like blender uh, it restricts people from doing that work that kind of work and that kind of experimentation um, 
it, it would restrict them based on the money that's involved to, to get that stuff or, or it would restrict them uh, from experimenting until they got into, you know, uh, some college you know, program that would allow them to, you know, start experimenting with these things. And I think it's much healthier, much uh, more uh, rewarding and, and ultimately uh, you'll get a better result if, 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 if people can explore this stuff on their own without any guidance, at least prior to uh, doing it in school. So it's creating uh, a, a free-form foundation almost, you know, where they can just have their creative juices sort of flowing through these things, so to speak, learning through doing. Yeah, yeah. And, that, you know, I, um, I, I, didn't, I didn't go to college for the work that I do. I, I, am, the, I in no way would not recommend it, though. I think, I think college is excellent, and I think people should go to school, you know, film schools and, and really get the exposure, especially to a lot of uh, different people with different ideas. I mean, that's some of the most exciting – that's one of the most exciting things about working for a studio – uh, like Pixar is that you can um, you you are exposed to lots of people with with different ways of thinking and different disciplines and different strengths, and and it's very you know it's it's very electrifying. It's really great. Um, so I I definitely think people should be going to school and figuring this you know learning this stuff in that kind of an environment. But I but I do think that both are important, and I think your ability to uh, explore and learn on your own is really important and and i think that something like blender gives people that opportunity uh in a way that's never happened before okay now an interesting sort of an interesting and convenient transition into uh the next thing i want to talk about which is your other venture which is paleo mill is uh, mm-hmm. a few years ago you had a, a photograph on your back wall of a, a dinosaur and you've got the good dinosaur coming out next year i believe um so sort yes. of yeah to touch to touch more on that is um yeah, how did you get into Paleo Mill and explain to people what Paleo Mill is? Well, um, we're still trying to figure out what what Paleo Mill is, uh, but but what it is is it's a company that I set up in order to scan uh, dinosaur skeletons and to make three D prints from them. And the the company uh, exists as a way of us making it um, hopefully one day self sustaining. Uh, because we were we're just in love with with dinosaurs, and we want to we want to help paleontologists, and we want to find ways to to replicate those dinosaurs so that you know if you if you have you know a 40 foot long T Rex with a you know five foot long skull, you obviously can't bring that to your home, but uh, but you could bring you know a smaller version of that you know like a like a six inch skull. Uh, you know, and, and hold it in your hands and examine it and, and enjoy it, uh, you know, and it's, and it's an exact replica of what, what you saw in the museum. So that's, that, that's, that company was formed uh, a few years ago in order for us to just start to um, go down the road of, of allowing a lot of paleontologists to have access to digitizing their collections and, and hopefully, ultimately, will help with research uh, and then on the on like a consumer level, hopefully it'll help to inspire people um, to to want to learn more about them or to or to make study easier. Mm. I mean, having tread the boards between the commercial and the research world, a lot of the misconception most of the time is, particularly when you're working with sort of 3D imaging or reality capture sort of technologies, is that everybody knows about it, but they they really don't. And so I think it would be interesting to sort of like ask you. Um, what are paleontologists on a day-to-day basis actually using at the moment to normally record and sort of study, you know, fossil records and things like that? 
Well, uh, yeah, even though the scanning technology is beginning, it, you know, to, to make its way into uh, paleontology and other branches of science, you're absolutely right that it's, it's pretty, uh, it, 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 people might be uh, stunned to learn, you know, how, how little it, it is used and how little is known about it. And um, uh, so uh, paleontology specifically has mostly relied on photographs and and uh, hand-drawn uh, uh, descriptions, basically, of the skeletons. Uh, so they'll, they'll be very detailed, very beautiful, by the way, uh, hand-drawn drawings that were done um, back in the 1800s and all the way up until fairly recently. And um, they that was that was the uh, the the way that the paleontologists could measure the bone against the drawing and kind of account for any distortion that would happen in a photograph. Um, all photography, um, you know, has this distortion that happens in the lens, this foreshortening, so that so the further away you know a form is from the camera, it's going to be smaller, obviously, and and the closer it is, it's going to be larger. Uh, mm -hmm. The problem is that if you're working with you know some bone that that has this kind of three-dimensional space. Uh, then something that's close to you is going to appear to be larger if you're trying to take measurements from it. Uh, and even if you match that to the to the piece, uh, if you measure any forms that are, that occur just a little bit further back in space, they have shrunk uh, with the distance. And so, um, you, if you do this scientific drawing, you can make sure that everything is the right measurement. And basically, that is something that scanning can can help with because you can create a completely orthographic image and, and it's something you can only do in the computer um, and so you can have a very accurate scan and you can basically flatten that scan so that it doesn't have you know any distortions and measurements can be taken off of it and this is and there's many other ways to take measurements using a digital digital data but but this is a way to do it in a paper so that when somebody is is looking at a flat image it's still very accurate um, but anyway uh, yeah paleontologists have uh, also had to study the forms in their natural sizes, and that's that's a very good thing. I mean, you, you need to come in, you need to be able to look at some of the detail that's recorded in the fossil, because uh, because you can actually see cellular detail in some fossils. They're so well preserved, um, but there are uh, insights that you that are hard to gain when you can't actually have those bones moving because they're too large, and that's another thing that that this can help with is that you can hold those bones in your hand and examine them in a way, you know, just tumbling them around that, that you, you may get ideas or, or observe, you may have observations that you couldn't have gotten any other way. And okay. it's just uh, the, the many, the more you can increase the number of perspectives you can have on a given piece, the better you can study it. That's fantastic. And what, overall. Sort, of, what sort of projects have you been, have you been working on thus far? Uh, we we have scanned mostly uh, skulls at this point. Uh, we've been working with the Black Hills Institute in in South Dakota, mm -hmm. and we they have um, access to a number of really good specimens. We are trying to make sure that we are getting the best specimens possible. We're trying to avoid compositing as much as possible. A lot of people may not realize that that a lot of these skeletons that you'll see in museums have a fair percentage of incompleteness and that's that's natural because you know the the these are animals that died uh they were weathered they maybe maybe were scavenged by you know predators when they were still fresh and then the process of of um 
you know, fossilization could take away more. So you might you might get a skeleton that is, you know, 60% complete, 40% complete, uh, and the gaps are filled in by either using other uh, specimens of the same species or by creating basically sculptures that fill in the gaps uh, based on other related animals. So the more complete you can get that, um, you know, the, the more complete of a specimen that we can work with, the more reliable we can say it is. Uh, we've worked, uh, we've scanned a stegosaurus skull. Um, it was our very first project. Uh, the stegosaurs are the ones with the big plates on the back. They have very uh, small heads and, and they have the spiked tails. Um, we've also scanned a chimerosaurus, which is a type of long-necked dinosaur, the sauropods. Uh, we've done that, that skull. We've uh, scanned uh, a T-Rex uh, skull from a very famous specimen named Stan. Um, and uh, we've done a little bit of Stan's uh, post-cranial skeleton, so the, the skeleton outside of the skull. Uh, and then right now we're working on um, a specimen called Lane, uh, which is a triceratops. And Lane has an amazing um, amount of skeletal detail, the, the, best, the best triceratops horridus specimen in the world right now oh, as wow. far as completeness. Um, and Lane has... Uh, has fossilized skin as well, and so we're going to be scanning that. But but we're actually, I mean, even as we speak, um, we're scanning her, uh, Lane's skeleton bone by bone, and we're eventually going to get a complete uh, skeleton. And, and hopefully with that, we can start working on um, making this biomechanical uh, study, maybe animating the skeleton itself. We can start putting the flesh back on. We can, you know, eventually have a skin uh, surface that is um, very reliable because it's coming directly from you know fossilized tissue that can be scanned. So it'll be it'll be a pretty wonderful piece. And Lane right now, um, the let's see, I, hopefully I'm getting the name exactly right, but it's the Houston Museum of Natural Sciences, I think, is where it, Lane is currently on display, the skeleton. But we're working with uh, casts and we're working with photos of the real uh, bones, and we're going to eventually incorporate you know as much different. Uh, kinds of material to scan from from Lane to get as much detail as we can get. Well, <clears throat> a lot of times it's more efficient to take the skeleton apart, uh, you know, take all the bones apart, so you can get every nook and cranny, and then and then you can reassemble that later. Uh, there is uh, going uh, to college for me. I, I've I came across a professor of mine, and he did a lot with um, dinosaur skeleton or skeletons and especially their skulls uh for comparative psychology they would always want to match brain regions of like the optical lobe uh where sensory organs are to humans and we can mm -hmm. actually learn a lot about that but he was doing some of this stuff with dinosaurs and what he would do is always you know make a plast and pour it down into this the pretty much the skull pull it out and then just kind of look at the bumps and lumps to see all right, this could be the visual cortex, this could be that. But it sounds like, wow, with scanning all this, you're getting an accurate detail that you're pretty much making the the days of making up a good plaster kind of obsolete to some degree. Then, and, and it's really crazy for a yeah. psychologist's point of view. That is awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's something, too, that, that um, maybe you know can be done more and more and it is being done too with humans i mean with cat scans uh ct scans they're now called um that you know that that is a great way to to look at uh you know 
like soft tissue that's no longer there. It often leaves an impression in the skeleton. And, um, you know, this is true of people and of modern animals, but it's also true of dinosaurs. And sometimes, you know, you can trace optic nerves through the canals that they traveled through when the animal was alive. You can, you could just like you said, you can look at um, the proportion of different lobes of the brain and how they relate to each other. And it'll give you an idea of what was important in that animal's daily life. Um, you know, what, you know, how, what was the proportion of um, olfactory uh, tissue, you know, what, uh, how important was smell to them, how important was sight to them. Uh, you can just see these different developmental areas and, and understand uh, maybe, you know, how the animal performed. And uh, it's, and sometimes, you know, you can apply things like just general brain size to, to the animal, but that, uh, you know, more and more we're finding that the brain size isn't as critical as we once thought it was. The, there's, there's a lot of animals, including birds that have uh, pretty small brains, but the brains are organized very efficiently and birds that it has to be because the bird mm -hmm. has to fly. So, so the brain has to be very light. So, you know, uh, through just regular evolution, they, you know, the brain has gotten to be a more and more efficient organ. So there can be a lot of complexity that, that, that you see, um, coming from a very small brain. And, um, and we see that in even some arthropods, some insects, uh, you know, signs of intelligence in jumping spiders and other animals, uh, which jumping spiders do tend to have proportionally a lot of brain tissue, but it's still a very small brain overall. And, and uh, so anyway, uh, yeah, to, to, to analyze uh, tissue that isn't there by the cavity that it left is, is a really big part of this. So far, PaleoMill isn't doing um, any kind of uh, CT scan work. Everything we do is, you know, is based on surface scans. But it's definitely something that we want to, to get into later, and, and we you know, cherish the value of that as it's being used in other you know, sciences, uh, including paleontology. Um, there's, a, there's other specimens that we've scanned that were still in the matrix, and the matrix is, is just what we call the rock and, and, uh, and dirt that is surrounding the fossil itself. And uh, when it's still you know, in the field, when it's still in the ground, and a lot of times um, to protect all the contextual information and to protect the bones themselves until you can get into a laboratory setting and, and really you know, clean them and take care of them very, very well under very controlled conditions. Um, sometimes you remove, you know, this whole chunk of ground that the, that the fossils are sitting in. And, and there are times when the last thing you wanted to to do is to disturb that contextual information. You don't you don't want to dig into it because you're going to lose a lot. And, and a really good solution to that is to get it into a large CT scanner. And there's 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 several of them around the world uh, that can penetrate you know like nine feet or more you know through through a giant fossil. And then you can you can actually get a, a, a three-dimensional recording of all the stuff that's in there and differentiate between the fossil bone and the matrix and and you can literally then extract from that data the the fossils themselves and and you could print them out you know maybe full size and and have a replica of those bones without having to disturb the fossil itself right. so. so at the moment then with the data that you're using what sort of uh softwares and solutions are you using and sort of how are you combining your skills as a, a sculptor stroke you know long time period animator with what you're doing with paleo mill uh, the I think um, we you know at Pixar we do these scans and and uh, and that's that's certainly one of the ideas that kind of 
I started thinking, well, it, you know, works really well with, with the stuff we're doing. Why can't, you know, we go and do that with the dinosaur, uh, uh, skeletons, but the, um, we, we probably, we use a different suite of, of software, uh, to once the, the scanning itself can take a long time, especially the way we do it. Cause we're very meticulous, but, but that's nothing compared to the post-processing and the post-processing we, we, we might use, um, there's a, a software called 3D Coat. We might use Maya. We might use um, um, all kinds of things that were kind of designed for the animation uh, market, but but it's it's really identical. The the some of some of the um, some of the things that that so, those kinds of software offer uh, are exactly what we need. We need to be able to turn the bone in space. We need to be able to clean up, you know, aberrations. We need to um, join different scans we need to sometimes uh well a lot of times we work on the shape data itself and get that taken care of but the kind of scanner we use which is a strobe driven photogrammatic chromatic scanner that's the thing that we use most for the dinosaur uh, skeletons we're also recording all the surface color and texture and so we need to eventually reapply that and and sometimes one scan pass might be a little slightly different than another scan pass and so we have to uh, we might have to even out uh, color to make it more accurate to the original. Um, so, and really, that's what's happening with Pixar too. Uh, in the early days of Pixar, we um, basically designed the software that we needed, and, and Maya was a huge part of that. Um, but, but more and more, Pixar uses a, a large combination of off-the-shelf uh, software programs that are available, and and uh, and you just you kind of you realize that one one program might work better than another for a very specific aspect of the work, uh, and then you you export it then to an you know to another kind of software in order to to get a different you know effect out of it. Yeah, so you're doing a best fit solution. That's that's interesting. And in terms of sort yeah. of color, how are you translating that over with your 3D prints? Are you actually doing 3D prints that contain color of like the fossils and things like that as well, or are you just doing? Sort yeah, of we. Sorry, Karen. Yeah, we are. We're uh, we're using uh, there's a there's a company called Images in Motion uh, that's near us in California here, and they uh, they have a uh, a 3D printer, a Z-Core 3D printer, which uh, even though it's not quite this simple, it's basically a plaster um, that that the piece is built from, and then it is later infiltrated with um, in in our case a cyanoacrylate, a super glue, which strengthens it. But the the this this powdered you know, plaster-like substance is take takes dyes very well, and so the 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 3D printer is depositing dyes based on the instructions from the file, and so it's replicating those colors. and And when the piece is done, it's you know it'll it'll record it'll have everything you know laid out on that print and copy all of those uh, color and textures onto the print, and it and it's a really nice process. And earlier I was mentioning that there was a lot of uh, times when the the fossil specimen you're looking at is still in the matrix, and I, I found that it's really helpful uh, to to have the color recorded and placed on something like that because it makes it so much easier to differentiate between the fossil bone and the matrix. Um, you can you can do it with shape, but it, you can you know sometimes something that's in the matrix might look a little like a bone, and sometimes a bone may be have has uh, it, it's not. Uh, it doesn't have a distinctive enough pattern 
uh, with no color to to stand out, you know, from from the rest of the matrix. So so color does so much to add information to what you're looking at. Um, I have a question. Do you ever think that in the future sure. you could just scan something in the matrix and then print it out without ever taking it out of the matrix? Yes, exactly. We we uh, that's that's something that is a wonderful you know uh, advantage of of doing something like a CAT scan is that we can a CT scan is that we can separate uh, the skeleton and just print the skeleton itself and uh, and ba basically make all of the matrix just disappear in the digital file. Um, right now, as uh, you know, a lot of this there's many different scanning technologies and there's so many uh, equally number an equally great number of printing 3D printing technologies. Uh, and so, um, it, you know, you can do it with various kinds of printers, and it can come out as a polymer or a plastic or whatever. But um, there are there are some that have really high resolution prints, and even though at this point in time it would be pretty expensive, you could print out a skeleton um, with pretty high resolution, uh, and and make it a one to one size thing, so that you could you could almost exactly replicate the fossil. Uh, at least down to a certain level, um, without you know, without having the matrix to deal with. Okay, and before okay, so before we go, I always ask people basically five things that they would like the audience to take away. This could be any sort of resource. It could be a book, it could be a website, software, anything you want. So if there was five things that the audience could take away from you, what what would you tell them they would be? What is it? Uh, let me think here for a moment. Uh, Ed Catmull just put out a book, and <laughs> I'm oh, suddenly drawing a blank as to what it is. Uh, once you see it, you know you should have remembered it. Anyway, it's called Creativity Incorporated, and what's very interesting about it is that he goes through. Ed is such a, a beautiful scientist. Um, he's he's got a PhD, uh, but he's he's just he has this way of looking at things uh, that that's very honest and very complete, and he constantly wants to learn and observe. And, and maybe, uh, you know, can give you this kind of foundation. Uh, what's cool about this book is its observation of human nature and how it relates to trying to get jobs done, both creative and technical. And, um, and it, it talks about his philosophies as well as the history of Pixar. Uh, and it's just a, it's just a very uh, nice book that I would highly recommend um, because it's, it's just, it, it kind of gives you, uh, his his perspective on things, and since since he was the, he's really the founder of Pixar, uh, it's it's a good person to hear this stuff from. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. So it's with, sorry, carry on. I'm listening. Sorry. Oh no no. Yeah, go ahead. No no no. It's it's basically it's it's interesting with Ed because obviously you know he was at the University of uh, Utah with people like Alan Kay and Newell and things like that as well, and they all seem to have that similar perspective. You know, um, I actually watched a mm -hmm. presentation that Alan gave a little while ago back at Utah and it seems as though they had some very key lecturers there at the time that instilled some really fantastic sort of, you know, research and professional values in that sort of crop of scientists that came out of there. It's, he's an interesting guy, really interesting. Yeah. 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 That's, sorry. So anyway, get back to the book. Sorry. It was a slight aside. Oh, yeah. I was just, I was just going to sum it up by just simply repeating the title. So it's just called creativity incorporated and it's, uh, it's by Ed Catmull and, uh, it's, it's something that, that I would recommend highly. And it's, uh, you know, it relates to, <laughs> it relates to our conversation and to my life. 
Okay, so that was Greg Dykstra, and that was the first Remotely Interested podcast. I don't know about Woody's Roundup, but this is a Remotely Interested Roundup. And I thought that interview was great. I thought he touched upon a lot of stuff about modelling reality, and I thought the stuff about dinosaurs was absolutely insightful. What did you think, Trevor? It was a great interview. I look forward to seeing what Pixar does next. And also, how his company does with the whole dinosaur 3D printing thing. I think that is so cool. Absolutely. And until next time, see you soon. The Remotely Interested podcast is listener-supported. You can support indirectly by following the links at remotely-interested.com or you can support directly by becoming a sponsor of the show. If you would like to become a sponsor of the show, follow the links on the remotely-interested.com website. Hello, sticker lovers. Stickerrobot.com is your place, your one go-to, to basically get stickers for your business. Sticker Robot has done stickers for Google, they've done stickers for Facebook, they've even done stickers for Hot Wheels. If you need stickers for anything in any walk of life, go to stickerrobot.com.